On June 9th, 2022, the first event of the Live Golf Invitational Series began. Live Golf, a professional golf tour founded in 2021 by Australian former golfer Greg Norman, has faced fierce opposition from the PGA Tour, which stated that any golfer who competes in Live Golf is ineligible to compete in the PGA Tour. In spite of this, world-renowned golfers like Dustin Johnson, Sergio Garcia, Bubba Watson, Bryson DeChambeau, and Phil Mickelson have joined Live Golf. Multiple participants have since stated that they were offered far more money to compete with Live Golf as opposed to the PGA Tour. Money is a major source of the controversy surrounding Live Golf, as the tour is bankrolled by Saudi Arabia's public investment fund. As a result, the project has been condemned by many as an example of sports washing, that is, laundering the reputation of the Saudi monarchy in light of Saudi Arabia's reputation as a repressive and authoritarian theocracy. Sports washing is believed to be a staple of Saudi Arabia's foreign policy, as the nation spends an estimated $1.5 billion a year on professional sporting ventures. Sports washing is by no means a new phenomenon. Arguably the most famous example of sports washing was the 1936 Olympics, which took place in Berlin, Germany under Nazi rule. Other athletic competitions, including the Olympics, have been held in countries with questionable human rights records, most recently the 2022 Olympics in Beijing, China. Sports washing can also occur on an individual or corporate level. Perhaps most notably, Qatar Airways sponsored Spanish soccer team FC Barcelona until 2017, displaying its name and logo on the team's jerseys. Qatar Airways is the flag carrier of Qatar, a nation that is also hosting the 2022 FIFA World Cup, and both of these sponsorships are considered by many to be attempts to sportswash the Qatari government's authoritarianism and use of borderline enslaved migrant workers. Until the recent Russian invasion of Ukraine, Russian oligarch and former Chukotka governor Roman Abramovich owned British soccer team Chelsea FC, which drew controversy due to Abramovich's notorious support for Russian President Vladimir Putin. Sports washing is considered a form of soft power diplomacy, which involves seeking influence through cultural rather than military means. Of course, soft power is not inherently malicious. On the contrary, it is one of the most powerful ways for a nation to promote its interests. Soft power can include anything from China gifting giant pandas to numerous countries since 1941, to the United States introducing Pepsi to the Soviet Union in 1971, to Pope John Paul II visiting state atheist communist Poland in 1979, to the New York Philharmonic Orchestra performing in North Korea in 2008. All of these instances involve a nation offering some type of cultural exchange to another nation. And just as a nation can engage in sports washing, a nation can also positively use soft power in sports. In 1972, the Summit Series was held, in which the Canadian and Soviet national hockey teams played a series of eight exhibition games in order to ease Cold War-era tensions between the two nations. 
The summit series was considered a diplomatic success as it is believed to have created a sense of mutual respect between the two hockey powerhouses. Similarly, in 1999, an exhibition baseball series was held between the Baltimore Orioles and the Cuban national baseball team in the hopes of fostering diplomacy between the U.S. and Cuba. This series was a monumental success, and it ultimately culminated in the 2014 normalization of relations between the U.S. and Cuba. Hockey and baseball are not the only sports to have featured soft power diplomacy. In one of the most successful diplomatic policies of the 20th century, another sport helped to relax one of the most tense international relationships of its time. I'm going to tell you all about it, right now, on Historia Obscura. Welcome to Historia Obscura. This is the 74th episode of this podcast, and I'm very excited for you to hear it. Special thank you to Patreon subscribers Barbara, Lisa Chase, and Tom. If you want to receive a shout-out in every episode, among other benefits, help support this podcast by going to patreon.com slash historiaobscura and becoming a patron. One more thing, make sure to stick around for a little to hear a message about the sponsor of this episode of Historia Obscura, Anchor. If you want to make your own podcast, you'll want to know everything about how to use Anchor. Relations between China and the United States throughout history have been, to put it bluntly, quite rocky. The two nations recognized each other in 1844 during the Qing Dynasty, and during this period, the Opium Wars, Chinese Exclusion Act, and Boxer Rebellion all took place, straining relations between the two nations. In 1911, the Chinese monarchy was overthrown and replaced with the Republic of China. Relations with the U.S. improved under this new government, led by a right-wing nationalist party known as the Kuomintang, with the two countries finding common ground on political goals. This became especially true during World War II, during which the U.S. military assisted China in fighting against the Imperial Japanese Army's invasion. Following World War II, however, China was rocked by a civil war between the Kuomintang, led by Chiang Kai-shek, and the Chinese Communist Party, led by Mao Zedong. As was often the case during the Cold War, the Chinese Civil War quickly turned into a proxy war, with the U.S. supporting the Kuomintang and the Soviet Union supporting the Communists. The Communists would go on to win the Civil War in 1949, causing the U.S. to sever diplomatic relations with the People's Republic of China. Instead, the U.S. government continued to recognize the Republic of China, which had been exiled to the island of Taiwan. The U.S. and China, the People's Republic that is, soon found themselves on opposite sides of the Korean War and Vietnam War, and in 1964, tensions between the two peaked when the Chinese government announced it had developed its first nuclear weapon. As if the Soviets weren't already bad enough, the U.S. government now had to worry about another communist opponent having nukes. The 
turning point of China-U.S. relations came in 1968 with the election of President Richard Nixon. While on the campaign trail, Nixon had previously expressed his support for reconciliation with China, stating, quote, There is no place on this small planet for a billion of its potentially most able people to live in angry isolation. Nixon, as well as Secretary of State Henry Kissinger, believed that the U.S. could play China and the USSR against each other in order to decrease communist influence in the East. This plan gained even more credence in 1969, when China and the USSR fought a series of border skirmishes near Manchuria. Still, for two countries that were still fighting on opposite sides of the Vietnam War, it would be a challenge to re-establish a relationship between China and the U.S. There was, however, an exception. See, the government of the People's Republic of China really cared about sports, so much so that their diplomatic ventures operated under the slogan, Friendship First, Competition Second. And what is the most popular sport in China? Boasting over 300 million amateur competitors, the answer to that question would be table tennis. Therefore, it surprised nobody when China swept the 1971 World Table Tennis Championships in Nagoya, Japan, winning gold in the men's team, women's singles, women's doubles, and mixed doubles competitions. The U.S. national table tennis team, meanwhile, was still in its infancy, and ranked 24th in the world, the team did not compete, but rather attended the tournament as spectators. One member of this team was Glenn Cowan, a 19-year-old who had only recently graduated high school back in New Rochelle, New York. One morning at the tournament, Cowan overslept and missed the American team's bus, so to get to the next venue, he hopped on the Chinese team's bus. The Chinese team had been personally ordered by Chairman Mao not to interact with any American athletes, but wanting to be polite, 30-year-old player Zhuang Zedong greeted Cowan and gave him a photo of the Huangshan Mountains as a gift. The next day, Cowan, a self-proclaimed hippie, returned the favor, giving Zhuang a t-shirt bearing a red, white, and blue peace symbol and the Beatles lyric, Let It Be. Though it may have seemed insignificant at the time, these gestures of friendship between Cowan and Zhuang would spark something much larger. Wanting to cover their own asses, members of the Chinese team reported Zhuang for interacting with an American. This news reached Chairman Mao, but rather than punishing Zhuang, Mao saw an opportunity, saying, quote, Zhuang Zedong is not just a good table tennis player, he's a good diplomat as well. On April 6, 1971, the day before the end of the championships, Mao extended an invite to the U.S. national table tennis team to visit China on an all-expense-paid trip. The team immediately accepted the offer, and Glenn Cowan was particularly excited, saying, quote, I'd like to see any country I haven't seen before, Argentina, Australia, and especially China. Likewise, Zhuang Zedong expressed support for the visit, stating, quote, Although the U.S. government is unfriendly to China, the American people are friends of the Chinese. On April 10th, three days after the end of the tournament, the American team's players, 
coaches and their respective spouses entered China from British Hong Kong. Over the next week, the team would play friendship matches with Chinese table tennis players, tour the Great Wall, attend lavish banquets with CCP elites, watch a Chinese ballet, and finally meet Chinese premier Zhou Enlai. During this meeting, Zhou praised the team, telling them that they had, quote, opened a new chapter in the relations of the American and Chinese people. Famously, Glenn Cowan responded to Zhou by asking what he thought of the hippie movement in America. After thinking for a moment, the premier shared a connection with the teenage player, saying, quote, Youth wants to seek the truth, and out of this search, various forms of change are bound to come forth. When we were young, it was the same, too. The American team departed China on April 17, 1972, with Zhuang Zedong reportedly promising Glenn Cowan that the Chinese team would soon return the favor and visit the United States. On February 21, 1972, Richard Nixon made history by becoming the first American president to visit Communist China. Nixon actually cited Ping Hong diplomacy as a contributing factor to the visit, stating, quote, I was as surprised as I was pleased. I had never expected that the China Initiative would come to fruition in the form of a ping pong team. Four months later, on July 8, 1972, Zhuang Zedong made good on his promise to Glenn Cowan by leading a week-long visit of the Chinese national table tennis team to the United States, during which time the American and Chinese teams competed once again at the University of Maryland. President Nixon's daughter, Tricia Nixon Cox, whose future husband attended Princeton University in New Jersey, was in the stands for this match. On January 1st, 1979, after 30 years of conflict, China and the United States finally normalized relations with each other. Sadly, the two players who had jump-started ping-pong diplomacy would both experience major hardships. Glenn Cowan struggled with bipolar disorder and schizophrenia for the rest of his life, and after being diagnosed with coronary artery disease, he underwent a bypass surgery during which he went into a coma that he would never wake up from. On June 4, 2004, Cowan died in Los Angeles, California at the age of 51. Back in China, Zhuang Zedong was arrested and jailed for four years in 1976 as part of Mao's Cultural Revolution. He was exiled to the Shanxi province in 1980, but after five years, he was allowed to return to Beijing and work as a local table tennis coach. Following Cowan's death, a heartbroken Zhuang said that his greatest regret was never seeing his younger competitor again. In 2007, he visited the U.S. once again, playing exhibition table tennis matches at the University of Southern California. The next year, however, he was diagnosed with late-stage colon cancer, which later metastasized to his lungs and liver. After five years in excruciating pain, Zhuang died in Beijing, China, on February 10, 2013, at the age of 72. It is no secret that China-U.S. relations have faltered in recent years, 
According to a 2020 survey, over 70% of Americans and Chinese have negative views of the other. In an attempt to ease these tensions and commemorate the 40th anniversary of the American team's visit to China, the Chinese team, as well as the surviving members of the 1971 team, visited the Richard Nixon Presidential Library in Yorba Linda, California. There, the surviving members of the original American and Chinese teams did what they do best. They played ping pong. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Historia Obscura. I certainly enjoyed learning about it myself. If you want to suggest an episode of Historia Obscura, send me a voice message at anchor.fm slash historiaobscura slash message. Feel free to leave your name and location, and if I like your idea, I'll make an episode of it and give you credit. Additionally, if you want to support this podcast, go to patreon.com slash historiaobscura and become a patron. And of course, I can't go without once again thanking this episode's sponsor, Anchor. They are by far the easiest way to make a podcast, so if you want to make your own, go to anchor.fm. With that said, this is Jack from Historia Obscura, signing off, but not for long.